välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med Valeria Luiselli i samtal med Judith Kiros. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast. Jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Särgelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Like I, I warned you before, I'm going to move through Valeria's works chronologically. I think that makes the most sense. Um, but then also talk generally about your ideas about literature or writing in general as well. Uh, so we'll begin with this book, Domtin Lasa, which came out uh, in Swedish this spring. And then go on to Historia uh, Nominatender, which I don't know if that many people here have read it because it's... It was released quite recently. I think yesterday. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> Might have read it in English or Spanish. <laughs> That's really true. So, uh, as I was reading this, Faces in the Crowd, uh, I thought about the way uh, it seems to be interested in dissolving the boundaries between literature and life, but also between life and death. Mm. Um, and I was thinking... To what extent would you be comfortable calling this a ghost story? Hmm. Well, it's, it's a good question, and I'm 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 glad that Rulfo came up just a second yeah. ago, and because um, in the Mexican literary tradition, ghostliness is not it has nothing to do with something that spooks you, no, or or not even like. Um, in the Edgar Allan Poe sense, no, that something that belongs to the realm of, of horror, really. But m a much more uh, interiorized um, world, the world of the dead. Like the, it, It's not that, that um, there's this cliche of Mexicans loving the day of the dead and there's flowers and music. Yes, all of that is true, but it's not, it's not I mean, we, I mean we, we do suffer our dead, of course, and we live in a country with with a brutal um, current circumstance of violence. But but I, I do think that to a degree there is like a sense that the dead are present. Um, and in literature it is the case, even more so, right? The the relationship, the, the, uh, literature is, is a way of remaining in conversation with the dead, right? With those that have, have departed. and. This this novel uh, wouldn't have been possible with without Pedro Paramo, um, which which is a novel that I reread every two or three years, because it's a novel that precisely gives you as a writer, as a reader too, but as a writer in particular, the freedom to to break the boundaries of space and time that often tie us to to linear narrative of. Um, the linear narrative of, of this world, right? So, so yes, it's a ghost novel in the sense that it it doesn't really differentiate between the world of of those who have departed and the world uh, where we live, um, and it and it does create a kind of dialogue between between those two worlds. Uh, you said uh, linear narrative, um, and that's something that you seem to engage with and disrupt, mm. not only in this book, but also I'm thinking about the story of my teeth um, when the main character, Highway, right? Because now I'm translating it back into English. English. What is it in Swedish? 
motorväg. Motorväg. Ja. He says, oh, a story has to have like a beginning, a middle and an end. And uh, routinely throughout the book goes end of comment, end of paragraph, that kind of thing. So what is it with linear narrative that bugs you? Well, <laughs> isn't, isn't it obvious? Like, it, our, is, is life linear in any way? You know? is, mm. are, are stories linear? And that, that, I mean, I think Aristotle did a great evil to us uh, by, by, by suggesting that that the way you tell stories is is through beginning, middle, and end in a kind of linear way, and we've been doing that for so many centuries now, right? And specifically, sort of the the nineteenth century novel uh, really ruined the way that we conceived life. I mean, it's still it's still there in most Netflix theories, uh, not theories, series, um, in most movies. You know, a, a way, like a very rigid impos imposition of of narrative in into a life that is fundamentally much more complex and chaotic and interesting and where there are connections between the past and present constantly um, and i I think that the disrupting that narrative is the i mean it's it's one of it's I almost see it as a duty you, know, to, uh, you can even i mean it's it's an aesthetic but it's also there's a there's a there's a political standing. Uh, behind that aesthetic too, in the sense of of the sort of our right to to a kind of freedom in the way we tell. It's interesting that you call it political. Could you elaborate on that? Well, this this novel is not openly political. It isn't, or it isn't openly political in the way that that may be expected. Um, in fact, when when I had just written it, I was pretty young when I began to. I don't know, young or not. But I was twenty six when I began, 25 or 26, when I began to write it, and maybe 27 or eight, eight probably when I finished. And it was published in Mexico, and then when my agent started um, showing it to editors elsewhere, many of the, of the reactions were, well, this is not really Mexican enough. So we, <laughs> we we discuss no what does that mean and it was the it was that moment was the height of the the probably the cusp of the the drug war period not that it has really ended at all but it was it was when all Mexicans understood that okay we were in the middle of a relatively silenced war and it, there weren't tanks but but it was indeed a state of war in which we were living the amount of people getting killed the journalists getting killed um, the m sort of mass media outside Mexico uh, thrilling in the portrayal of, of, of a country that was kind of crumbling. Um, and it was expected of a lot of writers and of Mexican writers to write about drug wars, no? to portray that deep, violent, fucked up Mexico. And I, mean, I have a lot of conversations with friends in Latin America about this kind of thing. I was recently talking to a Brazilian friend who said, yeah, I mean, I hate, I hate doing events sometimes um, in, in Europe because I, my, my books are really complex and they're really, and every time I go, they ask me about football. And, <laughs> and it's, what the hell? <laughs> what do you think in the World Cup? Um, so yeah, and, it, and in, in the case of Mexicans, I think we're in that particular period more than anything, we were expected to be political in that very obvious sense, right? Um, and this novel silences the drug war period, and although there is like one, 
like little hole through which it comes in, which is um, a house in Mexico City in the 2000s where some neighbor is listening to the radio and the narrator catches like a, a line uh, of the news, which is uh, about, you may remember the 72, 72 Central American migrants who had been uh, abducted, kidnapped, and then, and then shot in the head and, and mass buried, right? You, you, you may remember that piece yeah. of news because it was the first bit of news uh, of that tragedy, of that ongoing tragedy, by the way, to, to, to explode out into Mexico and into the world. Um, anyway, so, so I, I, had a, I had a clear political stance when writing it, which was, I am not going to form part of the noise Uh, around the drug wars. I'm not going to add everything. Every, it, it was a period that was very noisy. And I very, very, very consciously decided that the, the, the novel was going to have other political concerns, such as the, relate, the very conflicted relationship between Hispanics and, and uh, Americans. You know, that's what, that they're at the heart of the novel. Um, the conflicted relationship between motherhood and, or, yeah, motherhood subsuming womanhood, mm. or at least uh, the expectation of that happening, but not the drug wars, although they're present, they're present through this whole, right? And I think that is, um, I mean, I know it was an absolutely political stance. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, I'm not, I promise I won't ask you about football. <laughs> Um, I was also thinking. I love, about I love talking about football. Really? <laughs> God, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> End of conversation. Uh, in Faces in the Crowd as well, which I love, it's translated to The Weightless Ones in Swedish. So that's what it's called. That's the Spanish title. It's yeah. a, tra it's a translation from, from the original Spanish title. Although I, I suggested the, the English title, Faces in the Crowd. Yeah. Um, this is a translation from ingravidos, which means those without weight or mm. those without gravity. Well, I was thinking, because uh, what you were talking about with the linear narrative, um, also that it's a book that deals with kind of the multiple possibilities that literature offers. So, for example, a character can be dead and alive, a ghost and very real at the same time. How interested are you in that kind of thing? Um, I suppose the best way of talking about it is um, where things are both real and not real at the same time. How interested are you in that? With that in literature? I mean, I'm definitely not interested in magic realism. No. Um, and I think that I, I, my generation is one that is very conscious, consciously uh, written itself out of magic realism. Um, although we grew up reading sort of the the fathers because they were all alpha males, no, there were, there wasn't a single woman recognized in the boom generation, a generation of Latin Americans uh, who were the first to be prominent outside outside the Spanish the Spanish language. Um, they were all guys, no? uh, Garcia Marquez, Cortázar, Vargas Llosa, Rulfo. Himself, not all of them wrote within magic realism, but but they did. And and magic realism was a lot about um, about finding foundational myths of of the n relatively new Latin American nations, right? Um, 
it 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 somehow as as in absurdism and in Russia or um, what magic realism heightened was the the very the, the very absurdity of everyday quotidian reality in in, in Latin American politics and it, it's not that that we don't experience that still but the the I think the the style became rather obsolete in that it became with time not 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 the novels themselves the novels are you can still read Garcia Marquez's um Hundred Years of Solitude, or when, or Rulfo's Pedro Paramo, and find in it an, an, an endless well of, of joy and of frustration. And um, but the style became obsolete to tell reality. I think that it became a little bit of a cheesy way, almost. No, it became like it was used and overused, and then rewritten and taken by someone else. And it became a kind of style where, like, we're talking, and all of a sudden, I lift up in the sky and like, mm. like butterflies come out of the back and like someone there like I don't know stands up on a chair and like makes a wonderful speech or that could be cool actually but um, I think it became insufficient in the face of a much more crude and brutal late 20th century mm. like in a later capitalism where our countries became more and more unequal where democracies that were to be never really um, consolidated. I was, I was talking to Per, my editor today, and we were talking about the, what happened in Brazil um, today, where the National Museum caught on fire and they lost two million objects of, mm. like, like a, a huge part of a national memory just disappeared into ashes. And I, rem I was remembering this, um, Stefan Zweig went to Brazil once and and famously said, because he was enchanted by it, that Brazil was the country of the future. And Brazilians, with their extraordinary sense of humor, uh, replied in an article, a Brazilian man replied, well, yes, and it always will be. And I think that Mexico, Mexico is the same in that sense, right? Like, we're almost about to be okay, about to like consolidate the democracy, mm. and then bam, no, the drug wars, and in Brazil, the impeachment, uh, Lula in jail, seven one against Germany, etc. And I think all of that, I mean, in, in the crudeness of the of the of this beginning of the century, we have found other methods to to tell our our story. Do you feel like you have to contend with that particular literary tradition? Um, not within Latin America anymore, but it still remains to this day outside Latin America the like the 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 the, the seal of of Latin American storytelling. So I mean, a lot of uh, the first reviews that I received for this book uh, everywhere. I think not in Sweden. Hopefully, <laughs> you can tell me about it later. Yeah. Um, were about sort of oh the new magic realism like a new magic realism novel, and I just have I, I just got this pain in my stomach every time um, that I that I read that I was like no it's mm. it's not about that at all right so yes we have to contend in the sense of like the founding fathers are still kind of there present and I mean it's not that we we want to uh, commit parasite or anything we we I think it's 
we, we acknowledge the importance and the, and, the, and the strength and the beauty of that literature, but it is also like an, an entire, it's, it's, or it's actually like a very small part of a much larger and much richer tradition, literary tradition, that goes unacknowledged mm. everywhere, right? So it, we do contend with that and we do, I mean, I try to always bring to the conversation or even tell my editors in different languages about about many Latin American writers, a lot of women writers that simply have, have never been um, read anywhere else, right? Um, I think about, I mean, it's inevitable, I guess, but I think a lot about literary tradition when I read your books. Um, and I, it made me particularly, um, this book, but we'll come to the difference later, but uh, it made me think of this, essay by T.S. Eliot called Tradition and the Individual Talent. Talent. You've heard it before, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can talk about it the rest of the time. You, I, I adore it. Or, I mean, I have my things, but oh, I... Oh, no, I know you've heard about it, but do people bring it up often in relation to your work? No, no, they don't. So Okay. Because, um, because sort of, uh, to explain it, it's about how um, each new work draws on the canon, but also changes the canon. Uh, and that's very much like I feel like what this book is doing, in a sense, engaging with and changing the canon. Yeah. Uh, is that something that you're interested in doing? It's it's a really good question, and and I mean I I one of the one of the ideas in that in that wonderful essay by T. S. Eliot that I that I have thought of um, recurrently is 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 not an, not not only that idea of changing the canon, but like. But about like m the presentness of the past, right? Like how how writing is a discipline in which we are constantly making the past present by precisely this conversation with the dead, so to speak, right? Um, the com I mean, re reading is is a beautiful experience, and it's unique in the sense that you are completely inhabiting another person's mind, right? Like the the, the words make up sentences, make up ideas make up images, make up memories that we that become our own, right? I mean we it is a very like a very deep um experience of another person's soul or another person's mind or you wanna think about that. Um and in and, and, and in writing we write with our own memory and with our of course our, our imagination, our our capacity to recombine things, but we write with literary memory as well, right? I mean and in that sense, we renew, we renew, we re constantly renew, not renew the past, we make the past present. Mm -hmm. And f for sure, um, I was thinking about that in, in writing this first, f my first novel, Die Tingelusse. All right. Can I, can you pronounce I it? I cannot do that. Tingelusse. 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 <laughs> no, that was really well done. <laughs> so anyway, I, I was thinking of that for sure. Um, and it is a novel where, where, I mean, it doesn't only have that conversation with the past, but like many, many now dead writers appear as characters. And um, I mean, everything I say about what happens with them is a lie. I hope no, I, not everything. I mean, there's a lot that is not a lie. But uh, yeah. I won't go into <laughs> which part is is and isn't. I mean, I, I had some like interesting um, experiences with this, and I don't know what the Swedish edition does actually. There's, I only, I, I only was gonna get into trouble with one person of that that I wrote that that became a character, which um, who, who is the who is the father of a 
of a, of a man who, is, who, who now has dedicated part of his life to going after people who have quoted his father. This is Louis, I'm talking about Louis Sukowski, the, the American poet, who is a wonderful poet that I, that, I, that I have read widely and deeply, and who appears in the original and Spanish version of this novel as a character, and also his work is quoted. But when I was writing this novel, it was my first novel, I had no idea it was even going to get published, never mind translated. Um, so I was very free about what I was doing. I had, and also in Spanish, we just don't have the same ideas about copyright, and it's a very different liter literary culture in that sense. In English, if you quote someone, uh, if you quote more than a few lines of a poem, for example, you have to pay. Uh, and if you quote lyrics, like music lyrics, you have to pay a lot. I have a friend who quoted Lou Reed, Uh, Lou Reed's line, it's so cold in Alaska, not a particularly brilliant line by Ru Lou Reed, and he had to pay $2,000 for that. Oh my God. Imagine that. I don't know how it is in Sweden, but anyway, in Spanish we don't have that at all, so I freely quoted Louis uh, Sukowski, and not only that, he, he was a character. Um, and when the novel was translated into English, my publishers were like, ooh, what are we going to do about this, because this is Sukowski's son, he goes after people. And anyway, what we ended up doing was I, his name in the novel is Joshua Zvorsky. And then with the translator, I have a very sort of active relationship with my English translator where we both kind of work on the English version. And we phonetic, phonetically translated the poems that I had quoted so that they had the same meter and this very similar sounds but completely different um, semantical content. Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. Can you tell me a bit about your relationship with your translator? Uh, with Christina? Yeah. Uh, so Christina and I started working with my very first book, which is actually not this one. It's a, My first book is called Papeles Falsos, or False Papers, False Documents in Spanish, and then in English it's called Sidewalks. Um, and then we worked on, on this together. And I mean, it's hard to... I, I, I learned how to read and write in English before I did so in Spanish because I lived in, I, I, when I was six years old, which is kind of when you learn how to read or write. I mean, now kids learn it when they're two. But, uh, but then parenting was a little bit less neurotic then, I think. <laughs> or my parents didn't care, I don't know. So I learned when I was about six. And I learned how to do so in English, uh, not in Spanish. And my entire um, life I lived in either in, 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 in countries whose tongues were so foreign that I went to American schools or British schools, or in Anglo-Saxon Anglo, Anglo -Saxon countries. Um, so my entire intellectual life, so to speak, always happened in English. I always read writ, and, and wrote in English. Um, but I made the decision at some point in my life to, to write my first book in Spanish. Um, and that first book is about It's about bilingualism or multilingualism, I guess, and other people's, not, not mine. Uh, I, I, t I talk about my own life experience a bit, but it's more about like a, a compilation of, of, of people that lived between languages. And it's also a book about cities, and especially Mexico City. And it was a, a book that I wrote kind of to write myself into Spanish and write myself into my, my own city, which had never quite been my city, right? Um, anyway. When, when I started, when my first book got translated into English, of course, there was a, a great temptation to, to, um, to really play with that. Christina had an incredible kind of syntax and a repertoire of vocabulary that, that was definitely not mine, 
and that I really uh, enjoyed. I felt that she kind of took, took my writing elsewhere. Um, and we started working very closely. I allowed her freedom to sort of explore and not be completely loyal to the text. But then I would always go back and use her work as a kind of springboard to, to change stuff and, and, and rewrite a lot. Um, and something interesting that happened actually was that, <clears throat> was that I realized at some point that my writing in English became deeply influenced by her voice. So like now I write like a Maxwini Luiselli kind of English mm. probably. Um, so it, it, it has been a very, a very like beautiful dialogue. Mm. Um, and my, my last two books I've, I've written in English, right? Um, and they're definitely informed by, by, by experiments with her. We took that experiment to a completely different level in the story of my teeth, where yeah. she wrote, she, there's an entire chapter there that she, she wrote. That's, but that book is so interesting as well, because um, of the way in which it was written as a collaborative kind of participatory text. Can you talk a bit about that? I can, sure. Um, let me just say that before I, before I, I, I talk about that, just to not lose the thread of trans yeah. translation that you were asking about, um, I met my, my Swedish translator yesterday and was talking to her about how she translated this. Mm. And I was very, very happy and very, very enthusiastic to know that she had, I mean, she must be like crazy meticulous because she, she translated from the Spanish original but then she had the English open there all the time, and she checked every sentence against every sentence. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, what she did was she she retained the like the the Spanish uh, prosody and the and the the rhythms and and the kind of general spirit of the book. But the changes that I made in English, which were many. Uh, I think are part of the Swedish version. So the, what the Swedish is is like a like a like a baby of the like an Anglo Spanish Mexican <laughs> uh, weird parents. Mm. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm interested. I would love to be able to read it. Um, the book itself. You were asking about how how it was written. Mm. Um, it was it was not supposed to be a book, really. I I was in in that crisis, which is having to write a second novel. Um, and it was the first time that I, it's kind of horrible when you're writing a first novel, it's fantastic because you never think that anyone is going to publish it. So you have that freedom I was saying earlier, right? But once you have published a novel, then it's like, oh, when's your second novel, right? And then you really want to stop being a young promise. I don't know if that's mm. a term here, but like, yeah. yeah? Judith, yeah. the young promise, eh? the young, it's horrible to be a, a young promise. And I've always felt incredibly old in, inside of me. Um, for the worst possible reasons, and I, 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 I think I was like drowning in all these like expectations, and I had a plan for a really bad novel that I was really glad I never even began to write. Then I began another one that was complete failure, and I put it away as well. And one day I got an email from a cur curator in Mexico um, in a collection called the Humex Collection. I don't know if any of you are acquainted to like the contemporary art circuits, but if, if you are, you would, you would have heard of it. I, I had heard of it remotely, but I, it isn't a world that I was very connected with. So anyway, the Humex Collection Foundation 
was going to uh, put up an exhibition of um, a selection of relevant contemporary artists. And the, 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 the crux of this is that the collection is funded by the revenues of a juice factory, which is also called Jumex. Jumex actually means jugos mexicanos. It's really bizarre. If you started, thinking, <laughs> I mean, I really, I, I started getting really interested in like what, what's the connection between like this juice factory and this collection of like very high art. And they asked me, they had asked me to write like a possibly fictional blog of how they were putting this exhibition together. And I said, that's incredibly boring. Like, just like, like document or no. And then I said, blogs, I don't do blogs. No, I, when I was a, like a child teenager, I had a Tamagotchi mm. and it died. Oh, no. And I think that's a, like a very good reason why not to have blogs ever. And I never had a blog. And uh, you, know, you know Tamagotchis? I don't know. You had to like feed them. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows Tamagotchis. It's Mine died too. You died too, of yeah. course. That's why you're a writer. And <laughs> like, no offense for everyone whose Tamagotchi thrived. <laughs> I'm sure you're great business people are um, organized. Anyway, I didn't want to write, um, write a blog. But I was really interested in that connection. No? Like factory, wh what do the factory workers think of, of the work that is being put together there? What, like, what's the connection in general? So I suggested this thing, which is, so in, in, in Cuba, in the 19th century, there was something called the tobacco readers. And it was this really interesting thing where um, uh, in order to make, it's like one of this socialist communist idea that, that actually, I don't know, that, uh, that really did, was put into place and, and, and was really good. To make labor, daily labor, manual labor in cigar factories less uh, repetitive and soul crushing, um, there would be someone in the, in, the, in the front of the factory reading from the great works of, of literature. So, you would be rolling tobaccos and, 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 and read and like hearing uh, Crime and Punishment or uh, Balzac or whoever. Apparently, they still, it still happens today in Cuba, but now they, they read Stieg Larsson and, <laughs> and uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and things like that. But um, anyway, I always really loved that, that, that idea. So I wanted to do something similar, but uh, it was kind of impossible. Um, it was kind of impossible to put it together like this. So the suggestion that I made them was like, why don't I write like uh, installments, like weekly installments, and you guys publish, you guys have money, so like publish like some really nice chapbooks that can circulate in the factory, and then if people become interested and and they and they volunteer, then we can have like there can be like a reading group and I'll, I'll begin some kind of conversation and then they said no you're crazy that's not and then I said well then I won't do it and I said fine I will do it except they didn't make the chapbooks they just like printed in word like word document and since then I've always been obsessed with um, my publishers publishing this book in chapbooks and I've never been able to convince a single publisher of anything in general actually you know? um, Anyway, so they did that and 12 workers decided they would participate in this. So they got together every Wednesday evening, they read out loud what I had sent them, and then they talked about it. They always 
brutally criticized what they didn't like. <laughs> and, and then they always ended up just speaking about their own lives and telling stories and speaking about, about like how much they hated the artwork in the gallery and why. And, and so I, all of that was recorded in an MP3 audio and sent back to me. I live in, in New York. In, I lived in Harlem back then, now, now in the Bronx. And I would just hear, hear what they, everything from the reading to their comments. And then I would write the next installment. And that was it. it, it this went on for, for several months. Um, and it was very freeing because I, I, I wasn't writing a book, I was just in, in a conversation, like prompting a conversation with a group of people whose opinions I really wanted to hear and document somehow. And it eventually became, I mean eventually, you, you know what that means, like a lot of, <laughs> like yeah. another year of editing and it eventually became this, this book. What was it like working like that? Is it something you think you will do again in the future? I would love to do something similar if it's really prompted by... I mean, I wouldn't like to do it just for the experiment of it because um, that would be kind of meaningless. But in, in this case, it was for me, it was like, how can I have a remote conversation with these people? What, what would prompt? And I, and I mean, I definitely thought that like um, writing something that would be at, at, at once entertaining but also like that would also explore some of the things that you know that they're that they were living would maybe prompt a conversation. I also made many mistakes. Like I, for example, I immediately assumed when I was when I started writing that all the workers were going to be guys, you know, like middle-aged guys, uh, right? You think factory worker, and that's probably what pops up into your head. So I chose the voice of a of a male narrator, Gustavo Sanchez Sanchez. Multivagen. Multivagen. Mm. Uh, or in Spanish, Gustavo Sanchez Sanchez Carretera, and um, thinking that that maybe I will I would have like more immediate connection with my readers that way, and then when I heard the first recording of their readings, uh, an overwhelming majority were women, right? <laughs> I couldn't change narrators anymore, or, or I mean I could, but it was it would have been <laughs> a mess probably. Um, so I also made many wrong assumptions. They also assumed, and, and I decided to write under that pen name also for some kind of sense of credibility, right? I thought like, okay, I, I'm, I don't know, maybe if I write under a young woman's name and they look me up, then they won't be so open to, to this conversation. And uh, indeed they, I mean, I think I was, I was successful in convincing them in, that I was a guy because when, when when I sent the last installment, I also sent a voice recording with my real voice, with my spoken voice, saying thank you. And I heard the reaction, because that was also recorded. And when my voice came up, they were like, <gasps> and in Spanish they said, era vieja, <laughs> which I don't know how to translate, but it's like, she's a, she's a chick. No, there's not, no, it doesn't really translate well. But um, so yeah, they were also pretty surprised. Mm -hmm. But it's really interesting, kind of, the way that entire process makes the book porous too. So there's the real world leaks into it, and literature leaks out of it, like into the real world. Yeah, totally. I'm really glad that you say that. I mean, I think that all my books work that way. Mm -hmm. This was an extreme example of it, but all my books, I mean, from the first one, um, I never write like against. I was talking to a friend the other day who was telling me you know, that she's very difficult, uh, a lot of difficulties concentrating if she's not in a very particular 
environment with silence and like the kids are not there and um, and I and I was trying to think well, what, what's my experience of that and, and it's quite the opposite. I really feed off of everything of all the noise around me. Like it, like it's all my writing is very porous and I allow. Maybe I don't know why. I mean, I've never talked about it in psychotherapy, but but probably I had a loud household or something. So I. I, I, I remember, for example, writing my first essay that became part of my first book. I lived in a really like in a in a building that was falling apart in in Roma in Mexico City, and there was constant work like like drilling in your in your subconscious all the time, and the book became about. Um, like about the, the the noise and the rubble and the disasters and earth, like it all just became part of the book. So I think that, I mean, I've always preferred to bring in than to try to shut out. Um, in this case, it was extreme because it was voices of people discussing different, not only discussing art and discussing their own work in a factory, but also discussing my work in progress, which was really scary, right? Mm. Like you don't, I don't show anyone my my really messy work in progress. Um, I'd never studied creative writing in a school or anything, so I, I'm not used to exposing my work so immediately. So it was kind of terrifying, but also it was so liberating because they were making interpretations about what I was doing before I knew I was doing it often, mm. right? And that really pushed the book in 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 a direction. Like for example, they um, at some point I, mean, just, I won't bore you with too many details, but at some point of the, I, I was using a lot of names in the book, right? The, the book is made up a lot of a lot of name dropping, like like really literally name dropping. And the way um, that I now conceive it, thanks to one of the comments of, of, of one of the workers, is kind of like if you have a, like a piece of cloth. Well, this is kind of this is how gravity was explained to me when I was a teenager, like a piece of cloth where you can throw balls, right? Like a tennis ball or a, a football, and according to the weight of that ball, the 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 piece of cloth curves. Differently, right? Um, so, sort of space, space is 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 is, is shaped like that, right? Mm. Through through masses creating a, a a dent in in the fabric of space, and the way that names are used are exactly like that, right? Like a very if if, I, if you if you write a line and then the, a very simple line like uh, John brushed his teeth and and went out to the street in the early morning. Uh, it's one thing, and if you write Dostoevsky brushed his teeth and then went out in the early morning, the, the dent that you make in the literary fabric is completely different, right? So I was experimenting with that a lot because I understood at some point, uh, thanks to a comment of the worker of a worker, that we were what we were really discussing through my installments was the very relative value of artwork given not only um, not only a, a context, the context of a gallery, but the context of sort of the narrative and the names that, um, that I mean, a, a kind of simple idea actually, you know, that Marcel Duchamp had already thought of many, many years before that, but that, that came off of the conversations with the workers, right? That's interesting. Could you expand on the relative value of artwork? Because I feel like in this book, um, 
or rather in Domting Lhasa, yeah, uh, you make uh, Nella Larsen, for instance, a character in the novel. Mm -hmm. But in this book, it's more just name dropping. Mm -hmm. It's not the actual author, for example, yeah. necessarily. Um, mm -hmm. So. I understand what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the in the in the in the, in the previous book, Tinglosa, mm. um, the names that I use of people are actually themselves, right? So, mm. Nella Larson is is, is Nella Larson, and, and and so on and so forth. But in 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 um, I'm not going to try to say the name of this book in Swedish. In the history of my teeth, the story of my teeth, uh, the names are completely detached from their real referent, right? So. So Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky doesn't appear, I think, um, but he wouldn't denote the writer Dostoevsky, but he would be a bus driver, right, yeah. or a dentist, or so the names are really just dropped. It's just um, they're just dropped, and the what I mean part of part of what the reason for that exploration was 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 how how that, was that what I was saying earlier, affects the narrative and gives it a different value, right? Not only, a, I mean, a different meaning, but also, also a different value. And something really interesting that, that happened, that keeps on happening, is that there is a series of, of names uh, that belong to Mexican writers of my generation. Um, and the, re and the, the, the names that are there, the, one, the names that are dropped in that case, are just names, basically, of my friends, whom I knew wouldn't get angry with me if I used their names. Uh, of course, this was interpreted in Mexico as like, is this a, a list of the best writers? <laughs> or like, is this the, a homage to, to some kind of thing? And Mexico, to a degree, has a very solemn uh, literary culture. If we were in Mexico, we wouldn't have this table. We would have like a green, green velvet kind of carpeted table and like uh, these like really institutional glasses and like, like these all thick uh, microphones. I, I don't know. It's very Soviet still mm. in many in many ways. No? Um, and there's this kind of there, it, it's the country where like I don't know Octavio Pass, whose uh, anniversary it was I think last year or a couple of years ago, maybe had 80 different homages and events and another. So we have this like very pompous uh, literary culture. So to a degree, it, what I had the gesture that I was playing with had was interpreted in a very solemn way. While in Holland, no one knew who, who half of those names were. And what was really interesting in that experiment is, is again, no, like, how, how in di like how different linguistic communities uh, will, will read a book in a completely different way according to the references that, that those names point you to, right? In, in, in Mexico, those names weighed more heavily Whereas in China or maybe here uh, or Holland, they are weightless, right? They're they're just any name. And that's really interesting because I found myself while while I was reading it, um, first going, oh, is this uh, is this kind of an engagement with the canon? And am I supposed to be reading this as kind of working in the modernist tradition. Oh, no, no, it's not the modernist tradition anymore. It's something else, like that kind of thing. Okay. And so I caught myself doing that. And then eventually I just stopped and I just read it. Like characters, like names. That's where they are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is really interesting. And I suppose it exposes, um, like you said, li different linguistic communities, but also kind of cultural 
attitudes towards literature exactly. in general. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. But um, you have um, quite recently, yes, um, written uh, an essay called Tell Me How It Ends. I thought we could talk about that a bit. But before I do that, I want to ask about the novel that you're currently working on. If you're allowed to talk about it. I mean, I can talk a little bit about it. Yeah. But um, I, I still don't know how to talk about it. Um, yeah, that's what, yeah, that's why you should practice. <laughs> you can give me ideas afterwards. If I really mess up, you can tell me when you said that. No, don't ever say that. Yeah, give her feedback. <laughs> no, it, it takes time to, to learn how to talk about a novel, right? Like, I think most of the things that you are able to say, you're able to say because other people said them to you or... Or because just time passed and you're able to read with a with less in, with less personal investment, with less fear of anything. And um, uh, what is this novel about? I mean, this this novel that will come out in the U.S. in February. Here, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe the end of 2019 or maybe in 2020. Um, it's called Lost Children Archive, and I started writing it during a road trip that I took with my family from, from New York to Arizona. Um, well, my, my husband was researching um, the history of the Chiricahua Apaches and I had no life plan at that moment. Um, but I, but I, I was becoming invested very, very recently uh, in the in the crisis that had just erupted in the border of Mexico and the U.S. with uh, children arriving alone in the border and undocumented from Central America, having crossed Mexico and arriving to the border, where most were many of them were being quite systematically deported, and others were were being um, giving deport given deportation orders, but were were going to go to trial. And I, as we drove down, um, I, I started, I mean, I, I, am, I am a radio junkie. I listen to the radio all the time when I'm home or driving. And I, I, I was constantly listening to those stories. Um, and my husband at the same time was obsessed. He had been reading in silence for two years about Chiricahua Apaches and was telling the kids about it. And we, we have, we have, we have a mixed family, but in that tri in that trip, there were two children with us, um, my stepson and my daughter. And it was really interesting because at some point, the children in the backseat, our children, um, started like kind of reenacting a lot of the things that they were listening to, either through the radio or the Apache stories, but getting them really mixed up. So they would play like these verbal games like kids do, like, okay, so now we're gonna be blue coats, uh, or and I'm a blue coat and you are a, a, a migrant from Mexico and like you ha I'm gonna kill you and you have to run and hide and maybe steal a horse. And they would play these long like verbal story games, but they would be confusing like the present with the remote past. And I started kind of taking note. Um, again, not, not thinking of a book or anything, just taking note of this like, kind of wild, speech going on in the back seat of the car and at the same time feeling how their kind of bizarre world the children's bizarre world kind of electrifies uh, a room somehow now if you if you're in a room with more than one child 
uh, it gets really weird. You know? I mean, walk into a kindergarten room, I mean, you might start walking like this at some point. It, it, it's, they, they really make reality kind of bizarre. And, and if you spend too much time with kids in a car, you start losing <laughs> grasp of like, where you stop being an adult and where, you, where you're a child again. So anyway, the book documents, uh, fictionalizes to a degree, to a great degree, that journey that I did have with my family and which I write about kind of in, in Tell Me How It Ends, in the essay. But it also tells the story of seven children traveling alone aboard, not aboard, but atop a train called La Bestia, that I can talk more about later, um, and who are, I mean, obviously uh, um, s migrating, seeking to seek refuge in, in another country. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, if you see, saw it like a map, it, it's kind of the, the journey of a family uh, in a comfortable situation. Uh, they're driving a car and, and, and traveling to the south of, of, of the US. That kind of intersects with a journey of children coming up towards the US in completely different circumstances. Um, yeah, so that, that's kind of it. The, 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 the essay is, is very closely related to that. Yeah, they're closely linked. Yeah. That's... that's um because I was thinking about, uh, maybe we should move on to talk about the essay. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about how it came to be, and maybe why. Yeah. Um, I mean, I... I hmm. So I was writing the novel. I started taking notes for it in, during that trip in, in 2014. And shortly, when I came back from that trip to New York, I started... I, I was waiting. We were waiting for green. We had asked for green cards in in the U.S. in that period, so we couldn't leave the country um, because while you're waiting for a green card, you're not allowed to leave the country until, or, or 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 you can sometimes leave, but you but you have to have something called advanced parole, like a criminal almost, uh, and then you're paroled back in. Um, and I have very bad luck with paperwork, like incredibly bad luck. Um, my husband and and my daughter received the green card after like three or four months of their application. It took me about two and a half years. I mean, which, I mean, it's not that bad. There's people that wait longer, but it was, it was a long period. Um, and partly, I mean, no one really knew, the lawyer didn't know if it was because I had traveled to Muslim countries, or she kept on asking me, how you traveled to Muslim countries lately? And I said, well, I, I mean, I went to Indonesia when I was 10, and I went to Jordan when I was 18, but no, it's not like, or like, uh, have you had like political activity? Well, not really, not that much. And uh, do you belong to any associations that, I was like, well, I mean, I belong to several like associations of nerds, like uh, the, 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 the language association and the creative writing association. Anyway, I, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't, it just didn't come, didn't come. And in, at some point, my lawyer dropped me because she went on to take another job and um, like a, in another, like in an organization. And the crisis with the children arriving alone on the border had become really, had become re really serious by then. And I asked her at some point in the conversation when she was, when she was leaving me, like and it was like you know the goodbye conversation. Somehow I was I, I really kind of was, was feeling abandoned, but um, but not really. You know she she left me in, in relatively good hands. And I asked her like you're 
why are, why are you leaving? She said, well, because I'm going to start working in an organization um, that does pro bono work for the children that are arriving right now. And I said, really? And that I said, that kind of interests me. Do you think, like, is there any need for, for, for Spanish speakers in courts uh, doing translation work or whatever? And she said, yeah, actually, a lot. And so I ended up working in court shortly after we, we came back from this trip. And... Um, I remember talking to a, a friend, an editor, John Freeman, who every time I told him about the work I was doing in court, he was like, you, you have to write about it. No one's talking about, like, everyone's talking about the sort of the shock news, the children in the border, but no one really talks about the the bureaucracy of it, no? the, that which is kind of long-lasting and can often have more toxic results. Um, And I kept on saying to him, well, John, you know, I don't really understand the situation as too well yet. I don't understand immigration law. I'm really fucking angry politically, so I can't write anything that's worth reading. It would be like a Facebook rant. Um, so no, not yet, not yet. But after some time, I, I, I did. I, I, after some time, I actually I had to stop working because I, I became illegal to work because my green card didn't come, my, uh, my um, employment authorization, um, uh, what, do you, what is the right, I, I obviously get blocked when I start talking about <laughs> the employment authorization, uh, like the, the date it became, what word am I? It wasn't right. Expired, thank you, <laughs> it's expired. And so I, I had to resign for a while to my teaching job at the university, and I had like, Yeah, like six months where I couldn't work. You can't even volunteer work if they if they catch you, then whatever. So I wrote the essay in that period, and I'm really glad I did because, among other things, my novel, the novel, this novel that I was talking about earlier, was becoming really shitty because I was so angry that I was trying to use it as a kind of a, a political vessel for that rage. And I think that fiction doesn't do very well with, I mean, with rage it does, but it can't become like a pamphlet for your own political indignation becomes, because it comes kind of, becomes kind of flat. But the essay form um, is the right, was the right vessel. And I, and I wrote an essay which denounces the, the situation at the border. Um, and to give you a very, very, very like, like short version of what is happening or what was happening then, Um, basically, then it was 2014, so between October 2013 and June 2014, which was when, when we made this trip, there had been 80,000 children uh, arriving alone in the border. So t I mean, just think about th those numbers. No? Um, and the reaction of the Obama administration, and it's very important to, to say this and point it out and repeat it, It was the Obama administration, not Trump, that started this, uh, because it's very easy to, as a, a sort of left, the left wing can very easily relax when there is a president that 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 doesn't seem so bad, and and then not not be vigilant as a as a society, and that's what no one cared about what was happening in that in that period, and they really just let, um, no no no, there was the ACLU. I don't know if the ACLU was active or not in that period. They probably were, but there were there wasn't this 
fervor and this presence that now there is with Trump, right? And a lot of atrocities happen, in, in particularly in res with respect to immigration, in the Obama years. And in particular with the kids, it was kind of terrible. The administration created like a, a new policy, which was to make make the cases of children arriving seeking asylum, by the way, a totally legal thing to do, to arrive seeking asylum, uh, they created something called a priority docket. Basically, that just means a group of cases in court that now have priority to be tended to. Um, and that's very bad news for people in a circumstance like that, because when previously children had a year to find a lawyer to contest a deportation order, now they only had 21 days. Um, so you tell me which undocumented child whose family members in the US are possibly also undocumented is going to find a lawyer just like that and, and the money to pay for it. So what happened was that a lot of really hardworking organizations that had experience with migration, not necessarily with kids and the circumstance, but who had experience working with immigration law, came together, they formed a kind of think tank, and they came, they came up with a questionnaire to screen children and through this screening process, learn their stories, understand what they were fleeing from, uh, and understand if they were or weren't eligible for asylum or some other visa similar to asylum. And they put this into place immediately. As soon as the Obama administration uh, created the priority docket, there were already an army of volunteer workers uh, in courts doing this work, except there was one thing kind of missing, uh, and that was people that could translate, right? Um, and it's very weird because the US, the US is a Hispanic country too, although they don't necessarily know it. Um, I mean, it's a country where there's 60 million Spanish speakers. That's bigger than Spain. It, it is the second largest Hispanic country in the world. But lawyers in the US don't speak Spanish, uh, or very few of them. Lawyers and editors. It's like two guilds where like, Spanish like, editors speak French, because <laughs> it's fancy. Um, but no lawyers. And I mean, not enough lawyers spoke Spanish, even in New York. So what was really greatly needed were people to come in and translate. Uh, and not only from Spanish, but from indigenous languages too, but that, that is much more difficult, of course, to find people that can translate from Quechua, Quechua, or Mixteco, or... Anyway, I ended up being one of the many people that volunteered in that, in that process, screening, screening kids. Um, now, most of these kids uh, are fleeing gang violence in, in Central America, uh, in, in, in what's called the Northern Triangle of Central America, which is uh, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And when I say gang violence, it's not like some street gangs that, that are you know, bad boys. The, the gangs that they are fleeing from are the MS-13 and the Barrio 18. I don't know if you've heard about them before, but they, are, they function more like para-states. Uh, than like gangs. Uh, they, they have an, like a parallel system of justice. They have an, a very big economy because they, they are the ones that do the drug trade. They have very sophisticated arms sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, most of most, I mean, the, the, the guns usually come from the US uh, and the drugs go to the US. Now there's a, there's a circular system. Um, and these are gangs that were actually born in LA in the 1970s 
during the Reagan administration um, and were deported from, from LA back to, to Central America and they kind of spread like a cancer when they, they tried to sweep, sweep them under the rug, but what that, ha what that created was a, a, a transnational gang that is now, no one really knows, but they say that the MS-13 in particular has maybe about 70,000 people. It's a very big gang. Um, and they do, they traffic children, they traffic women, of course. Um, no, women, women are not allowed to form part of the gang, but they, they are what is called jainas, which basically means they're kind of the, the, the girlfriends of the leaders and they're passed around from, from leader to leader. And, and they recruit children much like they would be like, um, I don't know, like uh, the recruitment for child soldiers in, in previous uh, context of history. Uh, and if children say no, or if someone resists being recruited, or if a, if a young woman resists being the haina for some for some leader, they, I mean, they get tortured, or their mother gets killed in front of them, or I mean, the, the levels of violence of the MS-13 are kind of unbelievable. Um, and so the only option that these kids and teenagers have really is to flee. Now fleeing is a very dangerous thing because they have to cross Mexico, which is a country that is not protecting them at all. No, um, and this is something I'm, I'm always very ashamed about. You know, the, 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 the treatment that Mexico has on, on, on Central American migrants is atrocious, or it has been in the, in the past administrations. We're hoping that with a new president-elect, um, that might change. So most, I mean, to give you an idea, um, in the period in which I was writing this book, um, in six months, there were 11,000 registered kidnap kidnappings of Central Americans in Mexico by uh, drug gangs. Those are the registered ones. Who knows how many more, really? There's 150,000 roundabout in this last period people, Central American migrants disappeared. No one knows if they're dead, alive, if they are enslaved in some field, um, in some poppy field. Or um, Then the, the, what happens to women along the way is also atrocious. No, eight, eight out of ten girls and women get raped in Mexico along the way, either by gangs or police or whoever. So th that is the kind of completely nightmarish panorama for these kids and they arrive in the US and then they are put, once they, were, they, were they brought to the US by a, something called a coyote? Coyote is a human trafficker, human smuggler. And once they reach the border, they, the coyote, that's like the end of the, the job. Um, the coyotes receive between $5,000 and $7,000 for each child that they bring over. That money is usually paid by a family member in the US, like a m mother, a father sometimes, otherwise an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, a family friend, uh, which also implies that they, the families get deeply indebted because, who, no, I mean, $7,000 for a woman who cleans houses uh, is, 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 is basically like a condemnation to also being... Um, indebted with someone, who knows with who. Um, but of course, they pay and get indebted and bring the kids over. And once they, the kids um, reach the border and are left by the coyote, what they try to do is, is uh, turn themselves into border patrol immediately. Because a kid can't really cross the desert by himself or herself because it's really, it's, not, it's a dangerous desert. 
Uh, it's, I mean, full of natural dangers, animal dangers, but also human vigilantes, as they are called, you know, often like private ranch owners that, that like literally go out to hunt uh, Mexicans and Central Americans. And um, anyway, so they turn themselves into Border Patrol. Um, and what Border Patrol does is they put them immediately into something called an ice box, or it's colloquially called the ice box. It's a, like the first detention center. There's, I mean, there's many different kinds of detention centers and jails all over the U.S. As you may know, it's a private, prison is private. A, there's a big private industry of prisons in the U.S. Um, and more than 60% of immigration jails are handed by one, only one corporation that's making a lot of money with, with immigrant bodies. But anyway, they, they're put into this place called the ice box, and it's called the ice box because uh, it's run by ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, which is the more police brutal branch of Homeland Security. Um, and they are left there supposedly maximum 72 hours, in under kind of freezing temperatures, um, you know, it's as if like like foreign meat was gonna bring in like diseases. So they kind of freeze people for a few days. And they give they administer lots of vaccinations and things, and then children by law, by a law called the Flores Settlement, which actually Jeff Sessions has been trying to. Um, to revise and 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 annulate for the past six months or so, or when when did when did the crisis start again? No, for the past three months or so. Uh, but the Flores settlement is one of the few things that protects children in detention spaces uh, with like minimum standards that have to be met for a child. So a child is never never kept in the ice box for more than 72 hours. They're immediately after the 72 hours taken to a, a shelter. And that's really where it begins and where it ends. And like once they're in a shelter, they can contact a family member. If there's a family member that will take them and that has been waiting for them, uh, they will be let free. And, and, um, and then they will receive a deportation order that then they have to find a lawyer to be able to contest. So it's a kind of never ending um, bureaucratic loop that sometimes ends well, sometimes. I mean, there's, when children find a lawyer, most of the times they are able to, to, to win their trial. It's a book that really injects complexity in something that is usually simplified or spoken about um, in really similar ways, I think, globally, because so many of the terms that were used in in that context, I recognize from Swedish debates on immigration and, uh, for example, using the word immigrant rather than refugee, mm -hmm. um, which I thought uh, you made an excellent point about that, that we need to rework the language around migration as well. Um, would you be able to read a little bit before we yeah. do, before we take questions? Sure. Um, let me think. So. So I think I'll read to you from, this is like maybe halfway through the book. Um, the book is organized around all the, around the questions in the questionnaire, um, which start with like, why did you come to the United States? Uh, do you have a family member here? Where's your mother? Where's your father? Uh, did you perform uh, manual labor in your country? There's a series of questions 
40 questions in the in the questionnaire that we used in the New York Immigration Court that both like really uh, are revealing of the situation that the children are fleeing and but also are really revealing of the of the immigration system in the US right um, so I'll read to you from like yeah like midway in the book um, <clears throat> And like what happens when, like with certain like smaller children, with whom it's difficult to um, establish the kind of conversation that will be beneficial to them because they they can't like a seven or five or ten year old can't always tell their story in in the correct way, correct meaning that will actually grant them some kind of asylum, right? Um, so anyway, <clears throat> that's like the discussion around what I'm going to read you. Often my daughter asks me, so how does the story of those children end, Mama? I don't know how it ends yet, I usually say. My daughter follows up on the story she half hears. There's one story that obsesses her, a story I only tell her in pieces and for which I have not yet been able to offer a real ending. It begins with two girls in the courtroom. They're five and seven years old, and they're from a small village in Guatemala. Spanish is their second language, but the older girl speaks it well. We sit around the mahogany table in the room where the interviews take place, and their mother observes from one of the benches in the back. Uh, adults, are, or adults are not allowed to sit in the interview with a kid because their presence may modify what the kid wants to say or cannot say. We sit around the mahogany table in the room where the interviews take place and their mother observes from one of the benches in the back. The little girl concentrates on her coloring book, a crayon in her right hand. The older one has her hands crossed as an adult might and she answers my questions one by one. She's a little shy but tries to be clear and precise in her answers, delivering all of them with a big smile, toothless here and there. Why did you come to the United States? I don't know. How did you travel here? A man brought us. A coyote? No, a man. Was he nice to you? Yes, he was nice, I think. And where did you cross the border? I don't know. Texas, Arizona? Yes, Texas, Arizona. I realize it's impossible to go on with the interview, so I ask the lawyers to make an exception and allow the mother to meet with us, at least for a while. We go back to question one, and the mother responds for the girls, filling holes, explaining things, and also telling her own version of the story. When, she, when the younger of her daughters turned two, she decided to migrate north and left them in the care of their grandmother. She crossed two national borders with no documents. She wasn't detained by Border Patrol and managed to cross the desert with a group of other people. After a few weeks, she arrived in Long Island, where she had a cousin. That's where she settled. Years passed, and the girls grew up. Years passed, and she remarried. She had another child. <clears throat> One day, she called her mother, the grandmother of the girls, and told her that the time had come. She had saved enough money to bring the girls over. I don't know how the grandmother responded to the news of her granddaughter's imminent departure, but she noted the instructions down carefully and later explained them to the girls. 
In a few days, a man was going to come for them, a man who would help them get back to their mother. <clears throat> she told them that it would be a long trip, but that he would keep them safe. The man had, had taken many other girls from their village safely across the two borders to their mothers, and everything had gone well. So everything would go well this time too. The day before they left, their grandmother sewed a 10-digit telephone number on the collars of the dress each girl would wear throughout the entire trip. It was a 10-digit number the girls had not been able to memorize, as hard as she tried to get them to. So she had decided to embroider it on their dresses and repeat over and over again a single instruction. They should never take this dress off, not even to sleep. And as soon as they reached America, as soon as they met the first American policeman, they were to show the inside of the dress's collar to him. He would then dial the number and let them speak to their mother. The rest would follow. And the rest did follow. They made it to the border, were kept in custody in the icebox for an indefinite time period. They didn't remember how many days, but they said that they were colder in there than they had ever been before. After that, they went to a shelter and a few weeks later, they were put on a plane and flown to JFK, where their mother, baby brother, and stepfather were waiting for them. That's it? My daughter asks. That's it, I tell her. That's how it ends? Yes, that's how it ends. <clears throat> but of course it doesn't end there. That's just where it begins, with the first court summons, a first notice to appear. Thank you. Thank you. Right, I think we can take a few questions from the audience. Don't be shy. <coughs> She's really nice. No questions? That's, oh, that's yeah. There, there. Hi, Valeria. Um, I'm very happy to meet you and to hear these amazing stories. Um, I'm from Mexico. And, uh, and I wrote your book in Spanish. But we have a, a book club here in Sweden. Some of our, my friends are here. Hi. And um, some of them uh, read it in, in Swedish, actually. Cool. So I, I wanted to just bring this about the translations, how important it is to have a, a good translator. And I was amazed to, to read the, the end of Los Ingravidos when we read it in Spanish, because we were discussing a little bit about, the, about your end, which we have different interpretations that I won't go through it because pr probably people want to read it. But then we saw that the Swedish um, song, you know, the one that you're mentioning in, uh, in, in Spanish, in Swedish, it's, it's really another song which has nothing to do with the Spanish one, but it really fits in the story. Yeah. So I, I wanted to add that, that. Yeah, that's a conversation I had, if I remember yeah. correctly, with my translator, who's sitting here. I'm not going to expose her, because I, no, no, no. I don't know if she wants you to know where she's sitting. I can see her here. <laughs> but... Um, <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of things that, that, that would be, if you do a literal translation, you lose the sense, the actual sense, right? So in that sense, with, both with my English translator, but in general with, 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 uh, with all my other translators, I'm, I'm, I try to be very clear that 
that I'm much more happy with like them exploring a solution than than just being loyal. Yes. Like it doesn't. No, being the, uh, speaking both languages and living in Sweden, so I definitely identified with the Swedish one. But then I also we also were discussing the Spanish one, and they both. Spanish is the casa caída, exactly. Ah. Like casa se cae, los niños. Yeah, it's very tragic. It gives another quotation, and the, the Swedish one is totally different. I mean, it's uh, you can ask people here, but it, it does bring another um, kind of feeling to it. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember what the English one was because I also I took part in the in the decision of the English yeah. one, and it was completely different from the Spanish. So I don't know. If the, I don't know in this case if the Swedish is a translation from the English or if it's its own thing. But it, but it gave another spirit to the book. I wanted to, to add that. Thank well, you. Really nice to hear. <laughs> Hello, Valeria. Is there a difference between writing books where you sort of invent the story yourself and you're master of the plot uh, instead of your latest book where you're sort of driven by external events and it's more of a reportage than fantasy um are you referring to the, my essay tell me how it ends like um yeah i mean to a degree of course there are differences i i work i i i am not very interested in plot at all i never never think of a plot until i have to solve certain things so i'm, I'm not i don't i don't think of a plot and then fill it in with this kind of story with with na with narrative tissue i'm more interested in like in asking myself about form and and just i mean and i followed like general intuitions about the questions that i'm asking myself not like the answers to things that but like the questions that i'm preoccupied with in that moment so that implies that my work method is n not it's very open to to whatever happens around me constantly. And it also is, it's very much a method of like documenting the everyday, even though it's completely fictionalized and it's recomposed uh, to create fiction. So in that sense, my fiction and nonfiction are not that distant in, in terms of, 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 of my composition. Um, but, um, but, but one big difference that I, I, I could tell you about with Tell Me How It Ends with respect to the other books is that like I, in, I was really much more. I mean, I was interested in form as well. It is a book that that were, that I thought, well, what what form can I give it to really uh, be able to get to the heart of of of, of what I consider the heart of the matter? You know? and that's why I use this questionnaire in order to give a simultaneous X-ray of the legal system and the circumstance. And I think the that the the questions really helped me kind of see both sides of the border. Um, but with differently to my other books. The, the language in, in Tell Me How It Ends is, is, is very much at the service of, of the political circumstance that I'm denouncing. And it's, it's, less, it's, I mean, it's, it's less of a linguistic exploration, although it meditates on language, of course, but it, it is, it's just a more straightforward. I mean, I, I, was, I needed to be um, loyal to, to, a, to a situation and not, not so much to the book itself, right? Hi, um, Hi, thanks for the talk. It was really, really interesting. Um, 
before you were talking about um, you know name dropping and this kind of different interpretations of different linguistic communities and that in Mexico it's seen as an homage, whereas maybe in European countries um, not so much. And I think my question is just, did you have, what was the intention? Um, what was your reaction? Did you want it to be some kind of homage or did you just kind of want it to be this difference of reactions? Um, I guess just mm. what was the intention? The intention, again, rem uh, 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 as I said earlier, like I had, when I was writing this, it was really, I was writing something for a catalog and it was like a, an exchange between the workers and, and I in order to, for me to understand sort of that relationship between them and the factory. So I wasn't at all thinking, again, that it would become a book. Uh, and I was, I'm really glad that I didn't because that gave me a freedom that I wouldn't have given myself at all. Uh, being it like my second novel, I had all this pressure, you know. So, um, so there wasn't there wasn't at all an intention of homage. It was really much more about like exploring the way that different like names fell on a story, and how I mean, and like I don't know. I guess I guess it probably came out of, of, of like one of the discussions that the workers had, which was around like what what one of them said was like like really shitty art where the, the the artist was endowed with so much value that the work... So he, I think he or she was talking about um, a d desiccated dog by Mauricio Catalan, the Italian contemporary artist who does a lot of desiccated animals. And she was furious um, about... I mean, she just thought it was like really bad art and like just a really bad idea. But um, but but, ha but was then discussing sort of the the power of a name, right? Um, that can just endow something with like an immediate aura. Um, and some of the art pieces, like we took out, like, you know how like the whole, I guess the, the whole Duchampian question is, how have you bring a, a, a minghitorio, I just lost the word in, I don't know urinal? what it is, the urinal, uh, how you, if you bring a urinal into sort of the gallery museum space, it, it is immediately endowed with a kind of different value. In this case, it was like a different thing. We were kind of taking the artworks and I, I placed them outside the space of the gallery and somehow like thought about their value outside. And that happens with the names of people, like outside the pantheon of, of literature, the names themselves also lose all, all their value now. So if, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a name there too, no? And um, I appear as a 15-year-old who's trying to uh, learn better diction because she has like bad diction. And um, uh, whoever else is a, I don't know, my, my husband, who's also a writer, here appears as a, as a bus driver and, and so on and so forth. So the idea was there like to, to sort of, yeah, take, take the, the names out of a pantheon and then see how irrelevant <laughs> they are outside it, right? I think, yeah, one final question. Hi, Valeria. I'm Cecilia from Mexico also. <laughs> all the questions were Mexican. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you. And I have to say I feel very proud, not just of you being Mexican, but of you being a woman. I have a small daughter, and I love for her to grow up with these new generations of uh, artists um, so she can see up to. And my question is, 
how much of yourself is in, is it an, a bit autobiographic, the Ingravidos in a way? Because I have read a couple of recensions of some uh, Swedish newspapers and it, in some of them they said it might be a little bit of um, <laughs> autobiographic. So was it? Uh, no, I mean, my answer would be like, who cares? <laughs> uh, it's not, it's not a, like I'm not interested in, in, in that, no, it's, um, as I said earlier, I, I, do, I take material from, from my everyday life because I like to document the everyday um, with an exercise that I enjoy doing, but everything becomes fiction once it's on the page. All right, thank you so much. Thank it's you so much. Really thank you so, so much. interesting talking to you. Thanks, um, And uh, yeah, I obviously love your books. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, dear. So thank you. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you.